audio is terrible, but Jan Uhelski's is fine, and I hope you enjoy her amazing tales of the days of rock and roll and cream and everything else. DaleWileyShow.com. You are, you are clearly, clearly. And, and you know, you know. I think that's I think part that's of the part deal. Of the deal is, is when you get you into music, music, you know, you, know, you definitely the names, the names you recognize, you recognize are, are super important and super, and super cool. cool. And so, and so tell me tell about, about how you, how first, you first wanted, wanted to, write. to write. Um, You know, it's one of those stupid little elementary school stories. I mean, I I just knew I could write. I wrote about the space race when I was in fourth grade and. I was shocked when the teacher read it in front of the class. And I thought, wow, maybe I can write. Honestly, I didn't know I could write. It was just other people told me I could write. And it, it always came easy. I'm pretty hyperverbal, and I'm not really that shy. So, <laughs> good, good. It just, it just it happened. Um, and, and, you know, I was influenced by Brenda Starr Comics in, in the uh, you know, the, at the back of the Detroit Free Press. So I always thought right, right. that would be glamorous. I could be Brenda Starr. I have Auburn hair. Yeah, <laughs> no problem there. And I was obsessed with music from the time I was probably, God, 10 when the Beatles came out. And I okay. I was just, I used to sit at the kitchen table with paper plates and, and pens so I could get every lyric because that was enough expanse so I could write it down. And I... I sold candles door to door so I could finance a trip to Liverpool when I was 13. So working in rock journalism was predestined, I think. Wow. That's, that's a lot of, a lot of, that's that's a lot of information, information and, and it's very cool. cool. And so and you so grew up near Detroit then? then? I did, in the suburbs. Okay. okay. That made that it very easy to start a green. Well, you know, it was um, – it was the only game in town, but I worked at a local ballroom. There's um, the Fillmore, like Fillmore East and Fillmore West. And right, right. there was a DJ who worked in, in uh, Detroit and he went to the coast and he saw the Fillmore West and he thought, oh my God, I can bring one of those to Detroit. So when I was a, just a little after my 15th birthday, I got a job there as a Coca-Cola girl. So I saw all right. the bands that came out. And so, um, there was this really burgeoning hippie, like heavy metal music, proto-punk Stooges and MC5 scene in Detroit. And right, right. basically I just fit into it. It was it was what we used to call back in those charming days, the heads of the straights. You know, so I, I was one of those girls who wore short skirts and went and went to see bands. So um right, right. naturally naturally I say that like it's a fait accompli, but <laughs> yeah, I, I really was aimed at working at Cream. Once I saw that Cream was had come out when I was in high school, I started writing letters to the editor, and um, I they used to have a little kiosk at the Grandy Ballroom next to where I was the Coca-Cola girl. So I would say to the people who were manning the booth who sold the creams, uh, if I give you free Coca-Colas, can I write for you? So whatever it took, I was getting there. I was a woman on a mission at like 15 <laughs> Well, so what was your first article? article? Um, my first article was um, on Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson was retiring. And yes, yes. Dave Marsh, who was the editor, knew I loved Smokey Robinson. So he invited me to go to the press conference. I think half of it was so I could drive because he didn't drive. And the okay. other part was um, I kept bugging him to let me write. And I could just... 
I would never pull the trigger. I just was so full of fear, you know, that I, like, I wouldn't do it right. And so he took me and then that night he called me at home and he said, okay, where's the story? And I go, what story? And he said, well, I took you to see Smokey Robinson so you would write the story. So I was just gobsmacked. I said, no, I'm not writing. I don't have a Miracles album. So he said, get over here. So I drove like 20 miles to where he was living, picked up all his Miracle albums, and I took him back home, listened to them all night, and stayed up and finished the piece at 6 in the morning, and it became a wow. long letter. How many, How many words? I think it's about probably about twelve hundred. That's a lot of words. words. That's a lot of 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 words. Bands a lot. Like I really did like Dance and Vibe, and I liked a band called the SRC that was kind of pomp rock. I love the Stooges, um, but I had that really great advantage of working in a ballroom where all of the national and British acts came. So I was open about about um, Led Zeppelin. I love the Yardbirds. Prior to that, I liked Creedence Clearwater. I mean, I'm kind of like a heavy metal type, right? But, right. And that's really in the first waves of Detroit, that's what came out of there. It wasn't techno or, you know, EDM until much, much later. But those early mm-hmm. days, I, I, I was the perfect Detroit girl. <laughs> well, that, well is that is so cool. cool. And so, and so how did the magazine change when you were there? Um, I think the only thing that changed, I mean, I was there from the, I wasn't there at the inception. I was there a year later. Um, I think I got more and more professional. Um there was a real difference in the content and the and the mission. When I came there, it was a really community rag. It was it was a it was a local paper. Like I don't know what you have in Missouri, but we had like Metro Times in Detroit. There's like the Village Voice. It was very specific to Detroit, and it was very political because it was the time of the White Panthers. We were all friends with the MC5, so we were supporting John Sinclair, who was the king of the hippies. And right. right put into jail for two joints and, and, and <laughs> there were like prison reforms and birth control marches and anti-war things and we would cover that but over time um and as dave marsh edged out we became more mostly a music magazine and we wrote about movies and there was a cooking column at one point and there was stars cars because it was detroit so you are your car um, right. <laughs> But the music edged everything out, and I think we just got to be better writers. It's it's a lot like the Stooges. The Stooges didn't know how to play their instruments when they started, and as right. they kept playing, they got better. Well, as we kept writing, we got better and better. So yes. The call of the magazine um, got so much better. Like doing this documentary and going into the archives and reading those early issues, it's like really, it's like <laughs> this really stinks. But later on, like I'd say it really picks up in late 71 and goes until almost the end that it just is really high quality writing. Back in the early days of rock writing, the really intelligentsia would write about music. I mean, there's Grill Marcus and Craig Carpell and Robert Crisco and Dave Marsh. And, and that was an inspiration. And you had to write up to that level. So 
it was a it was a really different type of rock writing, and it was a little antic because Lester brought in the the shtick, you know, the over alliteration and the me journalism by making himself as big a character. Well, we all did as big a character as the um, musicians were. Well, well, clearly the blue green and Lester Bangs thing is worth spending a little time on. So tell me about that. Well, I think for Lester, Lou Reed represented everything. The Velvets were his favorite band. I mean, when he moved out, all he talked about was Lou Reed and, and the Velvets, and he played that music. And I think what happened was, and this is the genesis of the ongoing feud, is he he held the Velvets and Lou especially to a very high standard. And that was his North Star. And when Lou did something that he thought was unworthy of his talent, he had no problem in letting him know in a really aggressive way. Yes. yes. So what would happen is, yes, he'd write about it, but more so every time Lou would come to Detroit, and he came to Detroit a lot, Lester would assemble a posse. I was always there. My sister, who was one of, Les- was one of Lester's best friends, whatever girlfriend he had, a photographer or two, and we would just send on whatever the venue was, and before sound check or after sound check, Lou and Lester would meet. He insisted on calling him more bangs, like Lester bangs, like less bangs. <laughs> and they would, I mean, it was, it was awkward in how aggressive it was. It was, it was, you know, a slugfest of really witty insults. So I think I would have appreciated it more if I wasn't so uncomfortable. And I was always uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> the, the last time that, he did. I was there for two of his. I think the first one happened in California. The other two happened in Detroit. My sister and I went to the second one, and we went out to dinner with Lou and Lester and whoever was there and Lou's manager. And Lester said something to Lou, and Lou was so offended he got up from the dinner table and just left. And really? yeah, and just started walking through the mean streets of Detroit. And they are very mean and scary. So I don't know, it's some kind of maternal instinct. I said to my sister, Joanne, let's go follow him and make sure he's okay. So I had this big hog of a car, Galaxy XL500 um, on board, and I I kept about 15 feet away from him and just followed him with my sister through the streets, you know? I mean, I have no idea. I, I honestly felt sorrier for Lou because Lester... I always think that Lester got the best of him. And, and years later, right. in the documentary, I don't know if you've seen it, but in the documentary. I have yeah, seen it, yeah. yeah. I loved, I loved it. it. Oh, thank you. There, there's a part where um, I, I pulled one of my old interviews from Lou Reed, because I, I really liked him and always had really good, cordial interviews with him. Right, right. I asked him once about Lester, and he said, and it's in the documentary, he says that he liked me so much, why was he always picking on me? Why right, right. Me when I was really unable to defend myself? And, I just don't know. I think they made each other better and bigger, and they both got something out of that relationship. It was really, like I said, it was really horrible to behold the whole. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's, it's so, so interesting, interesting because, because, you know, you know at, one at one point, point you understand the, the you know, kill your idols thing, thing, but he just took just it to such a level, level and then and to see that Lou kind of. Kind of Wanted to play in that in that in that circle. circle. You know, wanted to play. play. At least, at least some extent. extent. The only time you could ever get Lester 
back is he would always dedicate a song to Lester. And the last one I remember is he, he dedicated one to, this goes out to Lester Banks and all the little squirts of shit of cream. So but, <laughs> I mean, that was just a little stinger. I mean, they, they at one point had to be pulled apart because they're just about going to go at it like this because unless he was a big guy like maybe six three not fat mm-hmm. and lou was like a little guy like you know maybe five nine at the most and always really wiry so but except that he had that fierce like eye of the tiger like i i did, wouldn't even really have known to put my bets on probably lou really <laughs> wow well so um kind of sticking, sticking with that, that i mean what, what was, was who was, who was the, artist the artist that you really 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 forward really you? you did you really, really want to idolize or, or did you beat them and what was going, going on there? Yeah, I um I I love Led Zeppelin, as I said before, and um I'd been on a short tour with um I think it was nineteen seventy three, seventy five, I actually can't remember, physical physical graffiti tour. Right. And then um, everything was fine. I interviewed them all, no problem. It, was, it wasn't anything special. It was just kind of newsy and okay. And then um, in 1977, um, I got called another another um, Led Zeppelin story, and it was going to be the cover story. And I was on tour with them for about five or six days in the Midwest. I was living in California at the time, but I came back to do the piece. Honestly, I'm not sure that uh, what year it was. And... Um, it was like the almost famous moment. Jimmy Page <laughs> wouldn't talk to me. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. I'm coming from the way. Go ahead and tell me. Tell me about the documentary and what it's like to be involved in this. So um, for five, five days, all he would do is avoid me. And I kept saying to the publicist, it's a cover story. I've already interviewed Robert Plant. I've already got interviews from, you know, John Jones, God bless. Um, I really can't write the story without him. So the last right, day, right. the last day, the, the last afternoon when I was supposed to go back to California, he finally agrees to let me interview him. But when I walk into the room, he says to me, um, I'm putting cellophane on my mouth. You can't ask me anything directly. You must talk to my publicist. So really, there we are three of us in a room, and every question I ask, I have to ask this woman. She repeats it exactly as I said it. He tells her the answer and won't tell me. It goes on for an hour. And the crazy part is, is I really only get a half an hour interview because he's compressed it by that. Right. <laughs> and at the end, um, the thing I like about best about this is I said to him, because I was just, I was a little pissed and a little bit like, like hysterical, you know, like I kept thinking this is like a bad cartoon. And so I'd heard that the tour doctor had, had, um, was complaining that someone had stolen his quaaludes. So, I, <laughs> so I said to Jimmy Page, at the end, maybe my second to last question, because you always ask your hard questions at the end, I go, well, did you steal the quaaludes? And he just sputtered. He goes, why would I steal them? I pay his salary. In essence, they are my quaaludes. And I said, so you stole them. He goes, and I said, And um, so at the end, you know, we close it up. He tells me he's going to have a party. He's going to interview. He's going to invite everyone except any journalist. And I said, 
well, we wouldn't come anyway. I walk up. <laughs> so years later, and this is, this is, I'm talking about 2010, Q Magazine asked to revisit that tour. So I write about exactly what happened, and I write about the Quaaludes. So I get a call maybe about a month after it's published from my friend Brad Talinsky, who did a book with Jimmy Page. And he goes, there's someone here who wants to talk to you. He puts someone on the phone. It's Jimmy Page. And he goes, I've always wanted to tell you I stole the Quaaludes. <laughs> so um, wow. it was a terrible time. And then it was it was a ecstatic moment when Jimmy Page called me. Because, oh, he wouldn't talk to me in person, but he talked to me on the phone, you know. <laughs> but it, it was crazy. That is, that is wild. wild. And, and so, so now, now moving forward, what is, is, is tell me about, about the documentary, documentary people who have had the, the Hillary Clinton. Well, um, what we did is JJ Kramer, who is um, who's my co-producer, um, right, right. was a lawyer for Abercrombie and Fitch, and he um, had always wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. I mean, he was willed after his dad died when he was four and a half. He he gave the magazine to JJ, but his mom sold it. So it's been JJ's life mission to get the magazine back. And I had gone back okay. to Detroit and seen JJ's mother, who I remained friends with because we both worked at Cream. And she said, JJ wants to give up his practice and come home to Detroit and start a magazine. I go, oh, that's a terrible, it's a terrible idea. It's <laughs> <laughs> job is a counsel for Abercrombie and Fitch. Why would he want to? I go, I have an idea. I've worked with a guy named Scott Crawford, and he just made his first film, Salad Days, and people loved it. They asked me about um, making a cream documentary, and I said, well, I don't know. I, I'm not really the right person to ask, and it just never went anywhere. And I said to Connie Kramer, I said, you know what? Why don't I put the two of them together and see what happens? And I did, and they're relatively the same age, and they had the same point of view about the documentary and they really got on I mean amazingly well and within a week they'd already decided they were going to make a documentary together and I did step back I wasn't involved at all I was just really the the conduit for the two of them but as they started working they kept calling me and asking me questions or they would ask me how do we get in touch with Gene Simmons or how do we get in touch with Kirk Hammett so what I did right. is I started calling up people who I'd done stories on and you know I always figured they owed me you know <laughs> so I um so I, I came on first as a consultant and then as a co-producer and then I ended up co-writing it with Scott so um for three and a half years I was this was my job was just um delving in my own way back machine and Wow. It was it was really emotional. I mean, I ended up with ulcers, you know. It was like just a story, right? <laughs> How so? Tell me why, why it was so hard, hard to do. Well, it was we there was so much to cover. There were so many big personalities. There were so many storylines. In essence, it's not really the story of three people. It was more like the friends cast, like an ensemble cast where we right. all all were part of Part of the big picture and we all had like weird participatory kind of things like Lester went on went on stage with Jay Giles I went on stage with Kiss Susan Whitehall went on a wild ride with Ted Nugent to get deer meat you know it was like it was always these crazy big stories but it was more like a group thing but when we um, interviewed Cameron Crowe he when I interviewed him I, I was asking him how he saw it and he said it was like a band and it was like the light bulb went off. So 
what we did that was an easier narrative peg to tell a story of a magazine with three big personalities like it was a band the, the premise right, was right. it was a band who was writing about bands and right. trying to get all that information all those interviews into something coherent and emotionally gripping and that you actually really cared was really hard and then we fought all the time you know the three of us fought <laughs> <laughs> well, well let's, let's not, not talk about, about, about your experience. Experience. about that um i've always been about really high concept stories i i just like uh, you know i like when Back when I was a kid in 16 Magazine, you know, someone would go shopping with George Harrison's wife, Patty Boyd, you know, or, right. or there was that book, Paper Tiger, where George Clinton um, joined the Detroit Lions as a line manager. Yes. So I'm from that kind of culture, and that was a big book in my past. Um, so I thought, you know, why not try this in rock life? Like, there had been a story in Esquire Magazine that, Again, Connie Kramer, my partner in crime, had read and she passed it over to me one night. She goes, Blair Sobel went on stage with, uh, I guess, do you think you could do something like that? And I go, oh boy, could I? And she goes, with who? And I go, with Kiss. Like, that was a no-brainer. So I called the next morning and I asked them, the, uh, the publicist and the promotion um, VP, and he said, sure. You can do it. Just wow. I know because they were trying to break them. This is before they had recorded alive, and they weren't like a household name yet. So they were they were down with whatever, like whatever. So would pose to get them pressed. They would do. I mean, that's part of their success that they never said no. And right, right. A great idea, but I don't know. It changed everything for me as a writer and for them. I think it humanized them, and I think it was really good for both of us. It. Okay, a lie really broke them, but I know that showed, it showed that they weren't just monsters, they weren't just cartoon characters, and it was just, to me, it was just a, a perfect storm of, of personalities and access, and um, me seeing what it was really like to be a musician and felt, feel what a musician feels when you get those bursts of energy from a crowd. Yeah. Yes. It was life-altering, really. You know, you know, because, because I mean, that, that was the highlight of the makeup days, and they were on their way up. up. And so that's, that's just so cool that you got to be a kiss member for the day, or whatever you call it. Yeah. That was just yeah. 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 everything. And then, um, um, so, so tell me about the movie, what's it called? Where can you find it? What's next for that thing? thing. Um, well, you can find it at creamruby.com, and it will show um, where you can download it the dvd will be on sale on i think august 28th and then it will be um on a lot of platforms on the 28th so it'll be it's virtual release since you know covid prevents us to right. the <laughs> so everything's virtual so if you go to creammovie.com you can find a link to that and download it and pay i think it's 9.95 it's on the um the rock and roll hall of fame's um website too they just sent out a mailing about that so um, just Google Cream Documentary, and um, you can find it that way, too. And it's and very good. good. But now let's also, also talk, talk about, about heart, heart, because you were also at heart. heart. Yeah, I was. Um, that was the, I, it was the closest I've gotten to Cream. Um, Scott was really a visionary, and he just such an amazing art director. So anything I wrote... He just, he just, it was really so beautiful. beautiful. It was, it was such, such a beautiful, beautiful magazine. magazine. I know all those clues. He, he 
was a he was a genius of blues, blues backgrounds, and girl singers. Like anytime there was a layout with a girl girl singer, he just like, outdid himself. But yeah, he he then the funny part was he hired all the um, old cream staff. Um, Dave Marsh was the person who got me in. He goes, yeah, there's this guy named Scott Crawford, and he's doing a magazine, and I'm writing for it. Why don't you? And then Jim DeRogatis, who wrote the Lester book, and Northland and Edward, and um, I can't Richard A. Walls. So um, Susan Whitehall. I mean, he really. I mean, it, it was him in training to do this documentary without him knowing it, really. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, he was good to work, work with. We, two of us, our brains work similarly. So when we do something, it really usually takes off. I mean, I have no idea why. You know, some people you vibe with and some people you don't. But, um, right, right, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I understand. And I always just love Scott from the moment I met him. But, but so, so what are what you doing do now, now other than this film? film? What's next? Um, I'm a media trainer, so I actually teach people how to do interviews. They can defend themselves against journalists like me. And okay. I write for a magazine in the UK called Uncut. Um, I write for Classic Rock, and I write for Relics um, in the US. So I'm still doing exactly everything that I was always doing. I'm still a rock journalist, full in. Right, right. Are there any bands that you really like or anybody you talk to now? Anybody blowing up your shirt as Louie would say? Like I love, I love that new Bright Eyes album. You know, the, their comeback album, if you want to call it that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I like like um, Nathaniel Ratcliffe. Um, I, yeah. I like um, Mike Campbell's new band, The Dirty Knobs. You know, the post yeah. band. That's really good. Um, God, I don't know. Bright Eyes is the album that I've seemed to play the most. I play old Jeff Tweedy all the time. You know, I Wilco is still yeah. like, way up there, and I still love Led Zeppelin. So. <laughs> Right, right. That's, that's good stuff. stuff. Still, still is. is. And that's, and that's why, why it's been so fun to talk to you and get you on the podcast. podcast. Well, thank, thank you so much for coming on. on. Really bad audio, really great guest, Jan Uhelski on DaleWileyShow.com. My friend Dave Stuckey on the musical map of Missouri, DaleWileyShow.com. Tell me about our mutual friend, Doug Erb. He's going to do the art for the project that I've started, and he's talked about he's coming down to Crane on Thursday, and he's going to do the art for the musical map of Missouri. Oh, wow. What a great – you haven't told me about this project. Well, That's great. You know, this is brand new. This is one of these things. We're doing it as uh, – the idea is we're doing a COVID relief fund. We were doing a map of Missouri and putting all the names on there. Everybody that everybody needs to know in the history of Missouri music from Lloyd and the skeletons to Lou and the skeletons to Chuck Berry to the big names and the little names. Porter Wagner. Oh yes. Oh, believe me. You know, you find I, one of the things that really led me to do this project was i drove through Anderson, Missouri, and there was a sign on there that said, Home of Patsy Montana. And I thought, oh, my gosh, Patsy Montana's from here. For me, that's a big deal, you know? Yeah. And that's why I just think this project's going to be so fun. So what we're going to do is we're going to get a Kickstarter on this. We're going to produce prints and, you know, add-ons and 
additional things and put up a Kickstarter and basically try to raise money as a COVID-19 thing to try to benefit musicians. That's fantastic. That is, I am so in on that Kickstarter. <laughs> I mean, because you know, know there's a lot. You and I don't think have every item because the first thing I thought of when we started doing this thing and started talking to Doug is we need a cap with Lou's face on it that says a rock and roll toupee. DaleWileyShow.com Because there was something in the water in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, don't forget me. I'm Brenda Lee and we're all going to have fun tonight on Ozark Jubilee. the Missouri Music Podcast, hosted by music fan and the founder of Slewfoot Records, Mr. Dale Wiley. 